morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thank you so much for listening today. I am your host, Scott Lowe, uh, joining you from my uh, incredibly uh, fancy recording studio, aka my home office in uh, what will soon be snowy Colorado, as we're expecting winter storm to move in later today. My goal today with the podcast, though, is not to tell you about what's happening in the weather in Colorado, but instead to help uh, equip and prepare you, my listeners, for your journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and public cloud environments. Now, as you know, we have a couple different types of shows that we do here on the full stack journey. Some of them are more career focused and they talk about somebody's career journey, the lessons they've learned, uh, the transitions they've made, why they made those transitions. And generally, you know, how we can gain something from those sort of journeys. But we also do uh, podcast episodes that are more focused on a specific technology, and today's episode falls into that category. So joining me today on the Full Stack Journey podcast, I have Dan Moore, and Dan and I are going to have a conversation about a topic that many people like to overlook, and it's authentication. So hi, Dan, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. So before we get into our action-packed uh, agenda, why don't you just share a little bit with the listeners about who you are and what you do, and maybe if you want to throw in some online contact information in case they'd like to connect with you or follow you online. Awesome. Yeah. So I've been a developer for a couple of decades and played multiple different roles. I've been a line employee, I've been a CTO, I've been an engineering manager, a technical trainer, but now I am actually in developer relations and I work for a company called FusionAuth, which is an authentication provider. And I get to spend my days writing documentation, talking to customers, talking to community members about authentication, OAuth, OIDC, some of these acronyms we're gonna dive into, I know a little bit later. If you want to learn more about me or follow me online, I'm on Twitter at MoreDS. That's Moreds, M-O-O-R-E-D-S. I'm also on Mastodon at ruby.social slash at MoreDS. And FusionOuth.io is where I publish most of my content nowadays. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. Uh, listeners, will have links to Dan's uh, social media profiles and such available in the show notes. So feel free to... Uh, find Dan online and follow him or connect with him as you would like. So Dan, I like to do a little thing with my guests just to kind of get listeners a little more familiar with you. And it's just a, a few sort of quick, uh, you know, A or B choices, kind of get a feel for who Dan is. So uh, first we'll start with, um, you know, the, the quintessential uh, techie question, and that is Star Wars or Star Trek? I got to go with Star Trek. Okay. All right. That's fine. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't officially polled the listeners, but I would imagine they are probably split about 50-50 because, you know, there you go. Um, this one is an ABC. So Linux, Macs, or, uh, Mac or Windows? So actually, I use Mac at work, but on my home PC, I have Windows. But I the first thing I do whenever I get a new Windows machine is immediately install Git Bash. So maybe it's A, B, and C. I don't know. Well, that would lead me to the next question, which was your shell of choice, which I would, I'm guessing then is, is Bash. You know, if uh, I guess on the Mac, I have to use ZSH because that's standard, but Bash is kind of where my heart is. I use uh, VI key bindings in Bash 
because I love uh, kind of the, the the muscle memory that I get from using the same editor and the same key bindings across my shell. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's perfect. You you've given listeners a great you know sort of thing there. We know you know Bash VI and uh, and you know the first thing you do on Windows is you install Git and Git Bash. So there you go. Um, I was expecting you to say first thing you did on Windows was was install or enable WSL, but maybe that's number two. You know, honestly, I think my PC is old enough that I I don't know whether I can run WSL, but I need to need to kick the tires on that because I've heard great things about it. So. Uh, yeah, and same same here. But I am far more in the Windows, uh, not the Windows. I'm sorry, far more on the Mac Linux side. I don't even think I have a Windows machine anywhere in the house, uh, and haven't for I don't maybe a decade. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's beside the point. All right, so we're going to talk today about authentication. Now I. I would imagine that most of the uh, you know listeners probably tend to think of authentication first just in terms of like you know oh I'm going out and I'm signing into some website and so they're thinking you know username password maybe they're thinking about a time based one time password maybe they're thinking about a security key um, I think those are probably far less common than the others but but there's a whole lot more about it and so kind of set us up for what we're going to be talking about when it comes to, you know, authentication and how it's used in in way more instances than just like a user authenticating to a, to something. Sure. Yeah, so I think, you know, the user authenticating is something is is foundational because we live in a world where more and more things are available online and it used to be uh, you know, maybe a hundred years ago when you were buying something, somebody, you saw them in person, you shook their hand, um, you could, you know, get some kind of assessment of, of who the person was, but now more and more we're doing things in a way that we're disintermediated. So authentication at its root is kind of knowing whether the, the entity making a request of some system has access to it. And you'll notice I say entity instead of user, because, there's two big classes of things that need to log in, things that need to authenticate. And the first is users, like human beings. Um, and things to think about with that are what ways they can prove themselves are uh, to, to the system in question. And there's three kind of big categories. And authentication folks love, like all nerds love jargon. So they call these factors of authentication. Um, you may be familiar with the term multi-factor authentication, but you can think about any way to prove someone is who they say they are as a factor. And the three big categories for users are, well, probably for all entities, but let's focus on users right now. Um, something you know. So an example, that might be a password or a secret question, something you have. You mentioned like a security key or a key, but also something you have possession of, like an email account. Um, and then something you are. So that's the biometrics, that's the gate analysis, the things that in, in theory are inherently who you are. And each of these has different strengths, right? Something you know, a strength of it is it can be something super um, unique and it also can be shared. That's a strength and a weakness, right? It can be shared. If I, if I want my wife to log into my bank account, I can share a password with her if I want... Uh, if somebody wants somebody illicit wants to get access to my bank account and they find my password, then suddenly they can now get access to it. So that's why something you know is is in some ways the most problematic of the factors. Um, something you are 
is problematic because nothing's 100% when you're thinking about biometrics, right? Face ID, fingerprints, they're all like basically have a threshold, right? So they get a pattern from you and then they have a threshold where if they see uh, another fingerprint, another face or another gait or another retina, then they assume like if it's over 90% or 95% or whatever the threshold is, that that's you. And that can be problematic in a couple of ways. Um, and then something you have is a is good because it's harder to share, but that also makes it tougher too. Anyway, so that's kind of users. And then there's this whole other class of things that need to authenticate, which are entities, which, um, sorry, not entities, pieces of software, right? So that's programs. Um, and this could be something that you're delegating access to as a user, or it could be something that is totally independent, but you want to manage and control access to this system um, to prevent unauthorized programs from getting access to it. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. And yeah, I think, you know, a lot of listeners probably familiar with the the sort of the, the user, you know, the, the entity being a user, right? Um, because that's, that's pretty prevalent, you know, everywhere we go, we're signing up for some account to do something, right? Even if it's simple as, you know, checking to see what number you are in line at the restaurant where you're having dinner, right? You have to create an account, which means you have to supply one of those, one or more of those factors, you know, something you have like an email address or a username that you've claimed, and then something you know, like, um, a, like a password or a PIN or something of that nature. Um, I think probably not so common is this idea of, uh, at least maybe not, maybe it's more common than I think, but this idea of you know, service to service authentication or, or, the, or the entity being a program, right? Not being a user. And then now you're having to, uh, I would imagine there's probably like a whole additional sort of class of considerations that you have to think about beyond that because, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's one thing when it's interactive, it's another thing when it's not interactive, right? Sure. So, I mean, I guess I'd say there are a couple of salient differences. The first is that computers don't have any issue uh, remembering long arbitrary strings <laughs> in a way that human beings do. So that actually lets you, if you've ever looked at an API key, uh, you know, it can be 256 characters and told mumbo jumbo because it's stored in a data or in memory somewhere and computers have no trouble retrieving it. Um, you know, there are other kind of classes of concerns around, um, you know, uh, making sure that things are rotated securely um, because when you're building something that is kind of programmatic, well, even I guess this happens with users too, although NIST has actually changed the recommendations. It used to be they said uh, that they wanted you to keep, they wanted systems to force users to rotate passwords. Now they say it just leads to insecure passwords because people will pick the same password and then add a one or a two to it. Um, so, but with computers, we have no such problems. So we can force kind of time-based rotation and that increases security because if someone happens to get access to that key for a period of time, well, it's only good for a, a certain period of time. Um, other things to think about is actually in some cases, we want to associate a user with a service. Uh, and this is kind of on behalf of semantics. So you could imagine if I have a service A that does something um, or sorry, I have a user that talks to service A and service A wants to call service B, but service A wants access to certain 
pieces of data in service B that are associated with the user, you need to somehow encapsulate the fact that service A is not calling service B on its own, it's actually calling it on behalf of service A. So this gets to kind of where you can, in my mind, you have kind of two paths. You can kind of roll your, well, sorry, there's three paths. The first is no services uh, service authentication at all. And for some class of, of data, this is okay, right? This is like an open web page, right? No one cares, you want the data out there, but since this is the conversation on authentication, let's set that one aside because that's essentially the, the you know, that's like multiplying by zero, right? Um, then the second class is API keys. Actually, I should be careful here. There's also, you can do some things if you're not out on the wild internet around like IP locking and knackles and network-based controls. And we can dig into that if we want, but that kind of gets much harder to do if you're in the world of SaaS, if you're in the world of public cloud, as you mentioned, um, so people move to either using API keys or using standards like OAuth and OIDC. And there's trade-offs between either one of these. Um, API keys are great. They're simple to understand. They're fairly simple to implement. But what I've seen is that you basically start out with kind of a single, you know, a set of a, a string that's assigned to each piece of software that wants access to your system. Right. And then you say, well, actually, um, you know, maybe you do that for one system and then you realize you're going to build that in for another system and a third system. Then you want to centralize it. Great. So you build like a central database of API keys and then you realize you want to build in some rotation. And so you start to build in like some kind of time boundedness. And then you realize that, wow, it'd be really nice if there was more information in this API key like had some structure in there so that the people that consume it don't always have to go back to that database to get information about it. And then you might say, well, um, I want to, uh, um, oh, I want to build in, you know, a way for, you know, I have these API keys that expire, but I want to be able to refresh them without the user uh, or the client application kind of logging in again um, or re-authenticating with, with that central server. And then at the end of the day, I would say, congratulations, you built OAuth. You basically kind of brought in all these patterns, which people, you know, codified in 2012 and have been building on since. So I'm not saying you shouldn't start with API keys. It's certainly better than nothing at all. But um, in my mind, time-based tokens, which is what OAuth gives you, let you short circuit a lot of the problems that you might not even know that you're going to face. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking in my head, I'll bet he's taking us along the journey that's going to end up at OAuth. <laughs> so, because that's invariably how standards happen, right? Somebody comes up with an idea and they're like, hey, let's do it this way. Oh, but maybe we should add support for that. Maybe we should add support for this. And then before you know it, you've got this big mess and you're like, okay, well, now we need to standardize this whole thing. So that brings us then to sort of OAuth and 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 uh, OIDC and OAuth 2. Um, I don't know, do, do people generally just use OAuth as a to refer to both, or is that a second version, or what's the relationship between OAuth and OAuth 2? Yeah, so most people nowadays, when they say OAuth, they mean OAuth 2. OAuth 1 was a, pro, a standard uh, that, I said OAuth 2 was basically created in about 2012 is when the, it was first moved through the IETF and published there. OAuth 1 happened a couple years earlier and had some drawbacks and OAuth 2 made some different design decisions. So 
I think the only major website that I know of that's using OAuth one is Twitter's uh, and even, is Twitter, and even they're starting to move off to OAuth two for some things. So yeah, I'd say call it OAuth two. And the question of whether Twitter is actually using OAuth right now is a bit of a moot point since all third party clients have been cut off. But that's a different topic entirely. So, um, <laughs> but um, so 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 give us you know kind of like you've already sort of led us to what, you know, all the considerations that brought it to OAuth, but I mean, like kind of just give us the breakdown at a high level, what is OAuth and, and how does it work? And then I always hear OIDC mentioned in connection with OAuth, but I'd really like to understand the relationship between those. So maybe we can dig into that after we talk a little bit about OAuth. Sure, yeah. So the, the core premise of OAuth is it's secure delegated access and, the idea is, and again, this this kind of varies whether you're talking about a user in the context of a user authenticating or a user de delegating their permissions or a piece of software. So let's kind of cover both those cases. So um, in the case of the user, you have three, well, actually, that's not true. I'm sorry. In both cases, you have kind of three main parties. The first is the thing that wants access. Right. And this is in the OAuth world is called the client. And so this may be me driving a web browser. It might be a piece of software that's running in a cron job, but somewhere, somehow it wants access to a protected resource. Then there's the thing that holds the protected resource. And this is called the resource ser server, or sometimes people abbreviate the RS. And so this is the thing that, um, you know, lets me, you know, the canonical example I always use is a to-do list. So it's a to-do API. It lets me add to-dos, remove to-dos, assign to-dos, et cetera. But it doesn't want to actually necessarily know who I am. Or sorry, let me rephrase that. It wants to know who I am. It doesn't want to authenticate me. And so what it does is it delegates that choice to an authorization server or delegates that action to an authorization server. So the client request something of the resource server. The resource server says, hey, I don't know who you are, sends you to the authorization server. The authorization server then authenticates you, again, using those factors, any combination of factors that it requires. Um, and that's one of the strengths of OAuth is that that authorization server can evolve over time, right? Uh, 10 years ago, no one was using MFA. You know, a year ago, no one was using, using WebAuthn, which was is basically like, a biometric, a way for web apps to get access to biometric um, authentication. But an authorization server can transparently evolve. Then that authorization server, once the user has been, or the entity has been authenticated, then it generates a token. And that token is a, is a time-bound set of credentials that oftentimes has data encoded inside it. And that is presented to the resource server. The resource server can then examine it and either validate it with the, with the authorization server, or if there's data encoded inside it, check that data, and from there, give access to the data or functionality that's required. So that's OAuth at a, at a high level. Gotcha. So OAuth isn't concerned about like what the client is, because you mentioned it could be a user or it could be a piece of software. Um, and you know, we've got these three parties. We've got the client, we've got the resource server, which is the thing we're trying to get to. And then we've got the authorization server. Now, in some contexts, I hear people using authentication and authorization like separately. 
Um, and you and um, you as well as others probably listening to the show have various probably heard people talk about auth n versus auth z. But in the description here, you're talking about uh, OAuth. You use the term authorization. Was that intentional? And do we need to be thinking about the two of these, or does it really matter? I'm I'm thinking. Well, I don't know. I'm still I'm still thinking about it. What do you think? Sure. So uh, the reason that people say OAuth is an authorization protocol and not a authentication protocol, even though authentication happens at the authorization server, is that the token doesn't necessarily need to have any user information in it, right? It could just say, um, yes, this entity is able to access these to-dos. Now, in my experience, it's very uncommon for that to be the case. It's very common for that token to have user data kind of mapped into it. But that token could be stored off and saved and presented later. So you don't have any kind of notice about the authentication event other than you know it happened at some point to generate that token. So that's where OIDC comes in because OIDC has a little more guarantees about the user and the fact that it, there was an authentication event and the user has chosen to give some of their data. OAuth was designed for a world where the resource server and the authorization server and the client aren't necessarily all this owned by the same entity. Now, in this world today, lots of people are choosing to implement OAuth within their own application. So it's just one more component and they have this authorization server. So their PII is isolated, but the resource server is owned by the same company. And then there's a native app that is run by the same company and the browser app is, in that case, scopes don't matter as much because scopes are all about the user at the authorization server knowing what the client is asking for. So you could imagine that in this to-do app, um, application, there may be a client that is editing and adding to-dos. And so that client is going to ask for a scope to basically be able to add, edit, update to-dos. There may be another client out there that only wants to sync to-dos to your calendar. And so it may ask for a scope only of to-dos. Now, this kind of interoperability um, is less common, I think, than maybe the people who are building OAuth thought it would be. Um, but scopes are still a, a, an important concept to be aware of. Anyway, the reason why I got on the scopes is that OpenID basically lets you choose the scopes you want to share with the client. So there's a scope for profile, there's a scope for email, there's a scope for phone number, et cetera. So it's layered on top of OAuth and some of the OAuth terminology, but it's much more about user data. Gotcha. Okay. So let me just I'll put that back into phrases that, that, that kind of are clicking in my head. Going back to the whole discussion about Auth and Auth Z, you know, here we're referring to it as an authorization server because we're kind of assuming, and it's generally the case, that at some point some sort of authentication thing had to happen in order for them to get the key that they are now presenting, whatever that material is that they're now presenting to the authorization server. Um, to the resource server. To, uh, uh, yeah, right, uh, right. Um, and, um, and so... Uh, sort of the building on top of OAuth 2. Then, then we have OIDC, which is now kind of, OIDC seems a little more tailored towards uh, the, the the instance when the entity is a, is a user as opposed to a piece of software, right? 
Um, and so we've got these ideas of scopes, you know, like, hey, I want to scope for the email address or the profile or whatever that is around what we are exposing or what data we are allowing the client to access. Um, is that is that accurate, right? Yes. And, and the way that I typically see this done is the OADC, you know, you're going to be the OADC information is is used by the client, right? It's used by the client to identify the user or display stuff to the user. Whereas, and, and you tend to get both, right? You get an access token and an ID token, whereas the access token is presented to the resource servers. But would you see, you wouldn't necessarily see that approach used when the entity is a piece of software, right? Like, Correct, right? Okay. Um, and, and the reason for that, and actually this probably is worth mentioning, like the way the OAuth works is the, the standard actually defines different they call them grants, which you can think of as like workflows. Like how does this dance between the client and the authorization server and the resource server work? And in a lot of cases, um, you know, different grants make sense for different types of use cases. The authorization code grant is, is the one that we recommend for any time when a user is involved. And when you're just talking about software, then we're talking about the client credentials grant, which back before I started working for this company and I didn't really know anything about OAuth at all, that's the one that clicked the most because basically the client credentials grant is a username and a password that gets you back a token that's time bound that you can then use other places. But whenever you need to refresh it, you can just kind of use the grant, the same grant again. Gotcha. So client credentials grant is like, is like the, you know, well, it is. I wouldn't say it's like it is the username and password equivalent you know, that we would that we would think of, but being leveraged by typically by a piece of software um, rather than by uh, you know a human or yeah, which means they can have really really long passwords and really really long usernames. Yeah, yeah, because you know again to your point earlier, computers don't have a problem remembering that kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be you know memorable or anything of that nature, so they have no problem generating hard hard passwords. Um, so, um, so OAuth 2 and OIDC are related, um, OIDC sort of building on OAuth 2 to add these other functionalities. Um, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned and that is like, so when, um, you are, you know, like, I guess making a request to the resource server and you want this functionality, we'll use the to-do app, you know, sort of example that you've been using where one type of permission would be being able to add or edit you know, to-dos and another type of mission might be just reading the to-do so that for the purposes of syncing them. Um, I guess that is all strictly defined by the resource server and therefore there's no sort of standard around how that is necessarily presented. In other words, it's all driven by whoever develops the API that is present on the resource server. So Twitter's API and the, and the things you can do with that would be necessarily be different than, you know, some other social media site. Is that an accurate statement? So, so again, back to the jargon, like the things that are encoded in that token that you can get in a variety of ways, they're called claims, claims about the holder of the token, basically. And there are some that are standardized, but they're kind of few and far between, right? So one standardized one is who issued this token. Another is who this token is for. Another is like the time that this token is valid for. And so those can be checked in kind of a business logic agnostic way, but 
everything else like the scopes um anything else you may have custom claims right so for twitter there may be one that says um you know you're a verified user or you're elon's friend or whatever and then for the two app it may say like super admin or something like that all that business logic about checking those permissions that's all on the developer of the resource server to do gotcha okay so there may be some subset that are standardized um but there's going to be a whole bunch more that aren't necessarily standardized by the way the token that you're referring to are we talking about a jot here a java uh javascript web token it could be so uh json web tokens are very common as access tokens but it's not actually defining the spec um and so the two ways that i've seen for you as a resource server to, to kind of examine this token are one you you as a developer of the resource server check the documentation you discover it's a jot or something similar like a Paceto token and it has internal structure it has a signature that you can verify um, to make sure it hasn't tampered with over the wire and so you go ahead and do that there and that scales very nicely the other option um, it does have some issues with kind of staleness the other option is you don't you, you don't check the documentation or you're not sure but you can actually pass this token back to the authorization server and say, hey, give me information about this access token. And the authorization server can look at stuff and, and send it back. And in both cases, they tend to be, you're basically examining a JSON object at the end of the day. But with the, with the, it's called introspection. When you send it back to the authorization server, you don't have to do the signature check because the authorization server is the thing that issued the token anyway. So why would it need to check the signature of something it issued itself? It just looks something up in the database. Gotcha, gotcha. So that makes sense. So the token, it could be a job, but it could also be some other kind of token. Um, and I think I remember seeing an article, I think I put it in one of my technology short takes where somebody did the sort of a relative comparison of all the various tokens and you know pros and cons of each. I'll try, and, listeners, I'll try and dig, dig, dig up a link to that if I can find it and I'll put it in the show notes as well, just in case you're, interested in such a thing. Now you mentioned um, something earlier that I've heard a lot about, but I was not, I personally am not sort of clear on how that relates to, or does it relate to the others? And that's WebAuthN. So got a good, pretty good feel for sort of what OAuth, OIDC are, to, are doing, but where does WebAuthN fit into this landscape? Sure. So I would consider WebAuthN to be orthogonal to OIDC and OAuth. It is just another factor. Just another factor like username, password, magic link, et cetera. Uh, where it's exciting to me is that it is a strong authentication factor that is built into every major browser that has widespread support. It was codified. I think they started working on it in 2015, but I think it was codified by the W3C and the FIDO Alliance, which are the two other standards bodies. Um, in 2019, but it's really seen a lot of rollout and now it is really widely supported. And so the win with WebAuthn is that I'm gonna wave my hands a little bit, but like basically you have a piece of hardware that has the ability to create private keys and share public keys. And, and an example of that is a fingerprint reader on an Android phone, touch ID on a Mac, um, Face ID on an iPhone. These all have ways to authenticate a user. I'm sorry, I'm I'm playing fast and loose here. 
there the iPhone, the Mac, the Android device all have ways to generate those private keys. They tie those private keys to ways of authenticating someone like touch ID, like face ID, et cetera. And so what happens with WebAuthn is a website can say, hey, I'm in, I support what I, I, I will support WebAuthn. Do you support WebAuthn browser? The browser said yes. And then the website can say, okay, well, let's set up a uh, WebAuthn basically registration for this user. And then the public, basically the browser, once that's initiated, and it's just a JavaScript call, the browser talks to the OS and which eventually talks to that piece of hardware, which is called an authenticator. And the authenticator creates a new private key. Um, there's some association around like the host name of the uh, website and then passes the public key and some other information back to the website. Website can store that off and it's a public key. And then the next time the user comes in on that device, they, uh, the website can challenge them and basically get back some data that has been signed by the private key. And then the website checks that that public key can decrypt the data or can validate it and then knows that that user is who they say they are and then they've authenticated. And then from there, they're off to the races just like if they'd logged in with username and password. Gotcha. Okay. That is probably the clearest explanation I have heard perhaps because we've already been discussing all this stuff. And so now when we discuss it in context, it begins to make sense that WebAuthn is really just, it's a it's an additional factor. We talked early on, you were talking about how, you know, this, there's, there could be just a variety of factors, right? Though that's the, set, the genesis of the whole term multi-factor authentication. That is just another another factor. And in this particular case, it's a, it's a generally speaking, a biometric factor, right? Um, I suppose it, it doesn't be, have to be, right? It, it could be a pin, it, it could be a UB key. Um, okay. The whole point is that it's, it, it's some, it's often a biometric factor. I guess I'd feel comfortable saying that. That's fine. It's okay to say it doesn't have to be. I, I mean, I mean, I think, I think, you know, it, generally it probably is going to be because of the push around biometrics that we see everywhere with fingerprint readers and, and that sort of thing. But it's okay to say technically it's not required to be. That's fine. Um, but, you know, having this, this additional factor um, and then, and then having that underpinned by some, you know, public private key, um, you know, magic, right. Uh, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, it's, it's in, in my, in, in my head, I think of this a lot as like, you know, that, that authenticator, whatever that is you were talking about on the phone or the laptop or whatever it was almost being like performing the same thing that unlocks, uh, your SSH private key that you're then going to use to authenticate an SSH, you know, like that you would use when you're doing SSH private key authentication, right? Uh, it, it's making that available for then to, there to be some, you know, data sent over with the private key, public key checks it. Oh yeah, yes, you're valid. Okay, now I know, you know, that you are who you say you are because mathematically we've proven that and then bam, off you go. I mean, is that a reasonable sort of summary? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it because the biometric authentication or the PIN or whatever is very equivalent to the passphrase that you're going to use with the SSH example. So that's a great way to put it. And I mean, even, even in newer systems, you could even use a biometric piece to unlock an SSH key. So I'm very, they have a lot of similarities in that regard. I'm sure the underlying you know, mechanisms or you know, the specific code and the way it's done is all different, but at a high level, the concept seems very, very similar. 
Um, so that's that's super useful. Thank you. Um, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of blindside you a little bit because um, I didn't prepare you ahead of time, but I'm just wondering. You know, you've got Apple and others talking about this idea of pass keys. I don't know if you know anything about those and where they fit in here. Sure. So we've um, you know we released WebAuthn and FusionAuth last year, and we've been looking around at kind of what the market's doing around this, and it seems like pass keys are they almost mean two things the first is they mean a web often set up for but a term that people who are normal are going to feel more comfortable with right consumers and whatnot um and then there's this other concept of like if i use touch id to log into website abc and i i, I give it my uh public key, which corresponds to a private key that's held on, on the Touch ID system on the Mac, what happens if I drop water on that Mac, right? What happens if that fingerprint reader goes bad and I can't fix it? Um, the the strength of WebAuthn is that that pub, private key is supposed to be held securely. And that means it's harder to fish. It means it's hard. It's, it's more secure because it can, you know, you can't, there's, sometimes you can get fished by people sending you a request for a code, but with WebAuthn, because the way it's tied to a host name, you, you can't get fished the same way. But that immediately raises the issue, which I already talked about of like, what happens if that device goes bad? One answer could be just register multiple devices. Um, that can work, but from what I can see pass keys is it, the idea of pass keys is, things get synced to a central server. Those, those private keys somehow get synced to a central server. And I know that Apple and Google are working with the W3C on the next version of WebAuthn. Uh, I think this one is WebAuthn 2. I think the next one's going to be WebAuthn 3. And I think that kind of dealing with that account recovery issue is going to be part of that. So I'd say passkeys kind of plays two roles, wears two hats. Gotcha. Okay. So, so the marketing name absolutely makes sense because like, you know, nobody's going to go out and say, look, our devices now support WebAuthn, you know, version two, um, you know, that, that's, you know, there's, I mean, and especially with Apple, I mean, like I'm an Apple user, but I love to poke fun at them because they, they are like the quintessential marketing company. I mean, like everything has to be marketed just exactly so. So that makes sense. But it also makes sense that when you have private keys that were generated by an authenticator on a piece of hardware, or on a Mac, or on a phone, or an Android, or whatever it might be, right? And having that private key sort of tied to that system because there's, you know, machine-specific or hardware-specific data baked into it, like a host name or you know some sort of hardware identifier or whatever that case may be. And then now, you know, oh, I dropped my laptop, it's dead, or you know, my car ran over my phone. What's going to happen with that? I mean, that's I think that's a a big question that would have to be answered before you could really roll this kind of thing out to a broad consumer market, right? Because people are going to ask that question. They're going to be like, well, I set it up in my phone and sure. nobody's going to want to hear, well, yeah, that was tied to your phone. Now you got to do it all over again on this new phone that you just bought. I guess I'd say two things or maybe three. First, I'd say actually Best Buy for a while did have a login with WebAuthn button, uh, which we were kind of surprised by, but they have since changed that now. And I think it says login with biometric authentication. Second thing is that I think that rolling it out to consumer audience, it depends on who the audience is and also whether WebAuthn is used as kind of like the primary way in or whether it's just a convenience. And that's actually the way we've approached it is 
you set up an account with FusionAuth and you're still going to set up a username and password or federate in via like an external provider, but then you can add WebAuthn on. And so then you can authenticate in either way and you still have account recovery options. But I absolutely hear what you're saying. And, and I think that the reason why they're working through the standards body is because it is a real problem and it is inhibiting adoption. Oh, and the last thing I want to say is I don't know if the private key is tied to the device by anything that is embedded in the private key. I think it's more that it's part of like trusted enclave that lives on the device. And so that's the thing that doesn't let you get access to it very easily. Gotcha. Yeah. I see. So they're leveraging, you know, the functionality of the secure enclave in the iPhone and in the uh, the Macs that are equipped uh, with the T chip, the T series security chip or whatever, which then expose a touch ID button or, or whatever the case may be other platforms too. But um, okay. So that makes sense. Either way, there's this, there's this hardware thing that, you know, like intentionally makes it hard to get to the key because you want it to be secure. But at the same time, that also means like it's kind of tied to that piece of hardware. Right. So gotcha. All right. Very good. Well, this has been a super helpful and super informative um, uh, discussion. Dan, I have seriously enjoyed it before I, um, before I wrap up, uh, you know, any sort of like, last things you want to mention? I mean, any final thoughts that you wanted to share? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, so there may not be anything else you want to add. The only thing I'd add, and, and this kind of gets back to some of our early conversation is there are so many good authentication authorization solutions out there. And, you know, I work for FusionAuth. I think FusionAuth is a great one, but there are plenty of open source libraries out there. There are plenty of commercial and open source offerings. There are offerings that are built into the framework. Whatever framework you're using on your full stack journey, uh, Django, Rails, Spring, .NET, they all have something. So what I would say is, my final thought would be, please don't roll your own off. Like, as, unless you want to do it as a learning experience, which is totally cool, but, and and trust me, <laughs> I'm a developer. I understand the pain of reading someone else's documentation and trying to figure out how to configure it as opposed to just writing the code yourself. But authentication is a lot more complicated than you think it is. And there are a lot more edge cases and there are a bevy of open source and free and commercial solutions. So that's that would be my final thought is please don't roll your own off. I mean, given that we're dealing with, you know, uh, keys and signatures and all of that, it's I think this is a, a reasonable corollary to don't roll your own crypto. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. All right. So, Dan, just remind listeners again real quick where they can find you online. Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at MoreDS, M-O-O-R-E-D-S, or on Mastodon at MoreDS, spelled the same way, at ruby.social. And I do a lot of writing on fusionauth.io. We actually have what I consider to be a really great intro guide to OAuth that I'll um, add to the links of the, or I'll send to Scott to add the links to the show notes. Um, but fusionauth.io is where I spend a lot of time talking about OAuth and we spend time educating developers. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Uh, that's it for this episode, listeners. I want to thank you once again for listening to uh, the show, for joining us for another episode. Um, I'm always open and love to hear feedback on this episode or any episode of the podcast. So I invite you to reach out to me. Uh, let me know what you think. Let me know how I can improve. You can um, reach me as at FSJ Podcast on Twitter, uh, as at uh, Scott underscore Low on Twitter, or as uh, at Scott S. Low 
um, at uh, fostedon.org on Mastodon if you are um, connected there. Um, and of course, this episode, as well as all of our episodes, published on the Packet Pushers website and available through a variety of platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. So um, we hope you can find the episode um, uh, on your platform of choice. And if there is a platform where it's missing, please let us know. Uh, thank you again for joining us. This is the Full Stack Journey podcast, where too much learning is never enough. Mm-hmm.